When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. Usually I host New Books and Film. Today, it's a film podcast, but it's also about science fiction. It belongs on both channels because I'm here today to talk to Jeffrey Angles. Now, Jeffrey is a professor of Japanese at Western Michigan University, and his most recent work that I'm excited to discuss with him today is a translation of two young adult novellas by Shigeru Kamaya, and those novellas are Godzilla and Godzilla Raids Again, and they're both published by the University of Minnesota Press in one new volume. This is the first English translation of these books. I'm very excited to talk to him about their origins, their connections to the films, and the challenges of translation. So welcome, Jeffrey. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. So like many people, I know Godzilla through the films. It, it seems like he's always been around, right? And I right. think I read, right? I think I read somewhere there's close to 30 sequels, and they're still coming. You know, as we record this in September of 2023, there is news that a new Godzilla film. It's called The New Empire. He teams up with Kong. I think in this one again is coming out this spring. And uh-huh. I say this because I had no idea that these first two films were based upon novellas. And just to be clear, these aren't those books that come out after the movie, like based upon a motion picture. But these these were actually written around the same time, at, you know, as the films were made. So tell us about the history of these two books about Godzilla and Godzilla Raids again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, there, there's kind of a long and interesting convoluted story. So I'll try to give the short version of this. But um, the original conception for the film Godzilla came in 1954. And um, uh, there was a producer from Toho Studios by the name of Tomoyuki Tanaka, who was in Indonesia filming a, a, uh, a film for Toho Studios um, about a, a, like, uh, a Japanese soldier who cooperated with the Indonesian resistance movement. Suddenly, um, due to some political uh, problems, uh, some souring of relationships uh, between Indonesia and Japan, um, suddenly Toho Studios lost the permission to film this this film that they were planning to create. So here was this guy Tanaka sitting in um, sitting in Indonesia, and he found himself suddenly without a project, and he's like, "Oh my God, what am I going to do?" So um, he gets on the airplane to go back to Japan, and he opens up a trade magazine. In it, there was an article about the American film uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which was you know created um, in their early 1950s and was kind of a hit in Japan. Uh, I'm sorry, a hit in America. And, he, uh, and he's like, well, gosh, I wonder if we could make something like that for America, uh, for Japan, for Japanese audiences. So um, on his way back to Japan, he comes up with this idea. 
Japan. Um, he arrives in Japan, and he goes to the um, author of the books that I've translated, um, Shigeru Kayama, and he says, you know, we've got this idea, Toho Studios, of making a movie like this. Can you help us write a screenplay? And uh, so the fellow who wrote this work that I translated um, came up with the scenario for the for the Godzilla film, for the very first Godzilla film. And um, the, he gave it to the people at Toho Studios. They worked on it. They modified it. And then um, and then the film was created. Um, so the first novella, the, the, the one that's called Godzilla, um, was based on the 1954 film. And actually, the novella was published the following year in 1955. So this was a, a novelization, but it was done by the same guy who wrote the scenario for the film. And so I think it was his kind of personal way of fleshing out the story and kind of, you know, putting his own independent uh, twist on it. Um, we know from like people's recollections that there was quite a lot of back and forth between the studio. His scenario kind of got um, changed quite a bit in the process of, uh, of writing it. So when he sat down to write the novella, um, I think he uh, wanted to kind of restore some of the um, his original thinking that that you know got a lot of bit, a little bit cloudy or a little bit lost in the filmmaking experience. Um, the uh, the second uh, novella that's in this book, Godzilla Raids Again, um, was written um, uh, and and published right about the same time as the second film came out. So this one is is pretty much um, simultaneous with the with the film, the second film that came out in 1955. So that's kind of a, a short history of. The way that they came out so they were in, in a way novelizations but they were done very very close to the time that the film was released and um yeah and so like they they came uh you know these two novellas came out you know both in 1955 or right about the same time as the second film yeah the collaboration of the of the director and the studio and the author the only other example i could think of that was in 2000 was with the film 2001 where Arthur C. Clarke was oh. kind of like writing the novel with Stanley Kubrick, and then like the novel came out with the movie, and so uh -huh. I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, like, oh wow, like this, someone else did this besides Clark and Kubrick. Right, right, right. No, that's 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 really interesting. A really interesting parallel. So let's talk about Shigeru Kamaya, or more accurately, you know, uh -huh. Koji Yamada, because I learned all this from reading your your great afterward. And so, like, can you talk a little more about him, about the author of Godzilla? Yeah. Um. So this is probably not a name that's terribly familiar to American audiences. Um. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first uh, translation ever of any of his work into English. Um. Kayama um was born in Tokyo. His his real name was uh, Koji Yamada. Um, but his pen name was Shigeru Kayama, and so so that's how people in Japan know him. Um, it's by the way, it's really common in the Japanese literary world, especially the older Japanese literary world, to take pen names. So um, one often finds these kind of situations. But um, uh, Kayama was a uh, a young man who was um, who was born in the year 1904. Um, he worked at the Japanese Ministry of Finance during. Uh, World War II. Um, he was not drafted and sent off to the war. He, he remained in Japan where he saw the worst years of World War II um, and learned about like you know the horrors of war, uh, developed a very kind of strong anti-war um, you know sentiments as a result of his um, experiences watching you know all the horrors of, uh, of World War II go down. Um, he started writing uh, after World War II ended. He wasn't I, I get the impression that he was a, a very um, uh, literature-loving young man, and uh, and so his heart was 
was was much more with literature than it was with finance. And so um, in the um, post-war period, um, there was a whole explosion of new magazines after World War II, like the Japanese uh, population, which had lived through the war and were really tired of the strict censorship during the late 1930s and 1940s, were starving for literature. And so there was this creation of lots and lots of new magazines. And one of them was a magazine called Hoseki, um, which means jewels. And um, this became like one of the foremost um, popular magazines of kind of adventure stories, of uh, mystery fiction, and so on. So this magazine, uh, Hoseki, kind of incubated the careers of lots of young writers, including um, Kayama. Uh, um, this magazine, uh, Hoseki, um, had a contest uh, for you know, trying to get new authors and discover new authors. And uh, Kayama sent in his uh, debut story to Hoseki. He won a prize, um, took him some money, um, and they, um, the magazine published his work. And that was a, um, a kind of fantastic uh, adventure story that takes place in the South Pacific, where um, in the story, uh, some people happen across a strange, large monster that, uh, that had been forgotten since you know, the beginning of time. So already you can kind of see like in this very debut uh, first story, um, like some of the themes that are going to appear um, in the Godzilla film and, and in these novels. So um, that story um, was, was the beginning of his career. Um, Hoseki immediately started commissioning other stories from him. And very quickly, he started publishing like crazy. Um, he almost immediately quit his job with the you know, Japanese Ministry of Finance. And he, um, I think within the first year or so of his career, he published something like 48 pieces, just like an astounding number of pieces. Um, a n- number might not be exactly accurate, but but he was publishing in the 40s, uh, like 40 pieces per year um, within the space of just a couple of years. So by the time that like um, Tohu Studios approached him in 1954, he was this um, this really kind of up and coming um, hot guy in the world of um, science fiction. Um, I might just add that um, that later on, you know, he continued to write. I mean, Godzilla certainly wasn't the last science fiction he wrote. Um, he lived until 1975, and he wrote really prolifically. Um, his complete works, uh, which was published in Japan, um, takes up an entire huge bookshelf. It's like 13 thick, thick volumes wow. long. So there is a lot of uh, Kayama out there, and I'm hoping that this is just like the tip of the iceberg, and that uh, people discover him and, and learn about all the kind of exciting science fiction that he's written. Yeah, we can ask you that. Yeah, there's a ton of it. I was going to ask you this later, but I'll ask you now since you mentioned it. Like, did he ever return to Godzilla? Uh-huh. Did he return to Godzilla after these two? No, he didn't. And so he he wrote um, a, a number of essays about his experience with Godzilla and, and like you know writing for the studios and stuff like that. But he decided not to return to it. Um, he 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 was the author of the first Godzilla screenplay, the novelization, and then. Um, and then the second movie and the, the the novella that was kind of published concurrently. But after that, he decided like, you know, oh, I don't really want to go back to this. And yeah. I can tell you a little bit more about why he why he wanted to do that if, if you're interested. Yeah, sure. Um, he um, so uh, maybe we'll get to this a little bit, um, you know, in the interview. But originally when he sat down to write Godzilla and he was approached by Toho Studios, he really wanted to use Godzilla as a story to kind of warn people about the horrors of nuclear weapons. 
Um, Japan, of course, had the experience of like living through Hiroshima, living through or Nagasaki. Right. And early in 1954, um, uh, there was a, a, a very famous incident in Japan where um, where a, a Japanese boat full of Japanese fishermen happened to be fishing out near the Bikini Atoll, which is in the Marshall Islands. And that happened to be where the American military was secretly testing the hydrogen bomb. So uh, so these poor Japanese fishermen got caught in the, um, the bombing. Um, and uh, these um, uh, this boat, which was uh, called the Lucky Dragon Number no. Five, <laughs> it wasn't very lucky, unfortunately. Um, they got caught in the uh, in the nuclear blast, and within a short space of time, one uh, crew member died, and the rest were you know given made very sick by radiation poisoning. So so this became like a huge sensational incident throughout Japan. Like people were horrified um, that that not you know that. That not only did we have the bombs that like were dropped on Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, but now we had bombs that were now five hundred times more powerful than the than the ones that were dropped on Japan. So, uh, so this set off like a fear throughout Japan, and um, and Godzilla is a direct reflection of that. The um, the first Godzilla film was made in nineteen fifty four, so the same year that this poor Japanese boat got you know caught in the nuclear blast. So, um, and and that actually was one of the reasons that the producers at Toho Studios were like, "Well, gosh, do you want to make a studio about a about a radioactive monster?" Um, he Kayama in his first draft of the Godzilla film for uh, for uh, uh, for Toho Studios included like this a really strong diatribe against nuclear weapons at the beginning of the work. So um, anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying that, no, that's that, good. You know, that really uh, Kayama was wanting to reflect on kind of the nuclear presence of Japan. And so, um, but uh, by the time that the second, we got around to writing and working on the second movie, like he realized that people kind of loved Godzilla. Like, yeah. you know, that children, children loved him. Like children were fascinated by like watching him stomp across Tokyo and stuff like that. And so he realized that like his initial kind of desire to use Godzilla as like a stand-in for the hydrogen bomb, um, you know, a, a way of kind of like talking about the horrors of radiation, um, wasn't necessarily like landing with everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. like, a lot of people like Godzilla. And and even he had to admit in one of his essays, he said, you know, I have to admit I was pretty fond of Godzilla too. <laughs> so so Eventually, I think he kind of arrived at the conclusion, like, you know, what I had wanted to do with the Godzilla stories is kind of morphing into something else. And so he's just like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I think he, he he really loved Godzilla. And it's said that when he went to the screening of the first movie, he wept, you know, like um, you know, silently in his chair, like so moved by the film. But, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he kind of decided at a certain point that, you know, it was turning into something else. Yeah, he says the the novel opens with this with this note from him, and he says that um, he says you know uh, Godzilla doesn't exist, but atomic weapons, hydrogen bombs exist, and he says that hey, this is this is his him word uh, his words here. People are pouring their energy into a new movement opposing the use of atomic and hydrogen bombs. As one small member of that movement, I have tried to do my part by writing a novel, the tale you now hold in your hands, and that's exactly what you were talking right. about. Yeah, like that's how he saw himself. 
And it's funny what you said right. about, about like, you know, liking Godzilla because I watched the first film again in preparation for this interview. And when you watch uh -huh. that, you know, you try to put yourself back in the mind of a viewer who's seeing this for the first time. And, you know, it, right. there's, a, there's a charm about Godzilla now that was brand, uh -huh. that didn't exist in 54, right? So the movie works kind of like Jaws. Right. Like they works like Jaws. They talk about the monster. Then you finally see that little bit of the monster in the water. And then he comes up. But what struck me uh -huh. watching it this time, and something that went right over my head as a kid when I would watch this on like Saturday morning eating, you know, Frosted Flakes, was that there's a scene where after one of Godzilla's rampages, there's there's a hospital and somebody's holding a Geiger counter next to kids and the Geiger counter yeah. is crazy. And all of a sudden you're right. like, you're like, oh, this isn't like fun. Like I don't like oh like Godzilla stomping on stuff. Okay, he's Godzilla, but that kind of right. it, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that's a little deep. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really important point. Um, so, so, yeah, when you watch the 1954 film, we can see clearly that there are these very um, concerned moments, like where he is he's obsessed with the uh, yeah. you know, the fear of nuclear radiation. Yeah. And there's no viewer in 1954 that would have seen that part of the movie, where, like children are you know are right. having the Geiger counter weighed over them. Um, that wouldn't think about like the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like right. they, um, everybody's mind would qu quickly go to that. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I think it's easy to forget that this, in its original conception, Godzilla was a statement about the fear of radiation. Yeah, because when he's when he's walking around Tokyo and 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 you know, and that later part by the bay, you know, you see the city on fire. You see the city on fire. You think like, what were right. people thinking in 1954 in Tokyo watching this movie? Like, like it's yeah, like this, it's like yeah. this cathartic way of of trying to deal with it. Right? Is that is that too far off field? Do you think that's accurate? No, 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 no. Absolutely, that's right. Um, yeah. So one of the one of the things that's that's also interesting to note here is that um, after World War II ended, um, Japan very quickly, you know, entered into this new phase of occupation. So Japan was occupied by the Allied powers from 1945 until 1952, so um, around seven years. And during that time, like, you know, Japan was picking itself up. People were trying to kind of create a new life. Um, they're trying to, you know, like, you know, rebuild their homes, um, you know, get over the loss of like, you know, family members that had passed away and so on. And so there was, um, I, I can't say like the film industry in Japan during that time didn't necessarily want to spend a lot of time looking back, you know, um, right. the, the, the recent past was so painful that, um, that there wasn't a huge number of movies that were made um, yet about the experiences of World War II. So um, um, my understanding is that, like, you know, there were lots of people who, you know, um, went to see the uh, Godzilla in the theaters and were just, like, broke down in tears. And these scenes, like, where they're watching Tokyo be destroyed right. um, because they all remembered their own experiences during it. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, and, it, yeah. and I should add, it wasn't just Tokyo that was destroyed during World War II. Like, basically, every major Japanese city was right. was bombed. And so there was, a, like, every major Japanese city had, like, you know, big burned-out ruins. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this was something that, like, you know, kind of struck a national chord. There's a, um, right after the scene, or soon after the scene in Godzilla with the Geiger counters, the, mm -hmm. the scene that you just mentioned, um, there's a scene in which we see kind of a television broadcast in the film, and um, the there's this kind of uh, moment of national mourning. Let's say children's choir comes in and sings a song, and um, that also appears in the novella. And um, it, there's this kind of like moment of like 
powerful morning as like, you know, we hear these children singing and then we see sign uh, uh, images of the ruins in Tokyo and so on. And um, again, I've heard over and over again from a number of people that like, you know, audiences in 1954 were just overwhelmed by this. Yeah. Um, it really kind of like evoked um, a lot of their own pain. So, you know, so like, you know, the, the movie resonated very differently with uh, with adults than, than it might have done with children. Yeah, certainly. And certainly, you know, certainly kids today. So if you say to a 10 year old today in America, hey, you want to watch Godzilla? They're like, yeah, sure. sure. Like they have no conception of what goes on. And uh, so it occurred right? to me like how different, <laughs> like, you know, the film is the film is the same, but the audiences are different. And that's what makes it such an interesting subject. So let, let's let's talk a little absolutely, more. Good. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Godzilla, the film. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. I was, I was just going to add that, yeah. This is a very multivalent thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it uh, audio, uh, adults and children responded to it in really different ways. Yeah. So let's talk about. I want to go back to like the actual plot because you mentioned earlier that um, that. Yeah, um, Kamaya's uh, first story was about a monster, you know, that that comes to life and things like that. And he draws upon this idea of the kaiju, and I, I love uh -huh. that you have a glossary at the back. So, so what is a kaiju, and and is there anything particularly uh -huh. Japanese about about this 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 story or this legend? Yeah, so um, the the word kaiju is uh, basically means like a large monster, and mm -hmm. Godzilla was really the first kind of major Japanese kaiju that caught on. In fact, you know, there were no kaiju movies, no movies about gigantic monsters um, in Japan up until this point. I mean, yeah, there were monsters in Japanese movies, but, you know, nothing on this scale. I should add, by the way, that Godzilla was the most expensive film ever made in Japan up until this point. It was it was not just a big monster, it was a big budget. <laughs> and, um, and and I think that comes through in, like, if you look at all the detail, you know, in, the, you know, in, the, in that first movie from 1954. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting uh, sidetracked. The, the word kaiju um, is, is made up of two characters. The first character, you know, the first letter that writes it means scary or weird. And ju means beast, wild beast. So, so a kaiju is basically a big scary beast. Um, the word actually goes all the way back to um, old Chinese. And so it, so it wasn't a word that was necessarily invented for, for this film. But um, the word kaiju was frequently used in the publicity surrounding the film, and it was used in the book itself. Um, uh, so the word, with the popularity of the Godzilla film and and um, in the book in Japan, the word kind of caught on, became like you know, uh, you know, entered into uh, common parlance. That's really um, interesting. And so you know. Yeah, and uh, Tobu Studios continued to, you know, they quickly realized that Godzilla was a moneymaker. And so they made, you know, sequel after sequel after sequel after sequel. And so, you know, in all the publicity, they kept on using the word kaiju, kaiju, kaiju. And so it really, you know, nowadays the word kaiju is just a regular word that, in fact, uh, I think it's even in like, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary. It's like crept into the English language from Japanese. Wow, that's really that's really really interesting. So so we have we we have this this historical moment. This this book and this film come out. It's 1954, and then you point out in the afterward. This is unbelievable. You say these are your words. It is practically unbelievable that no one has produced an English translation of these two novels. And I thought that was so true. And I'm like, because you'll you'll see a lot of the time like a new translation, but like you know you'll see Crime and Punishment yeah. translation or something. So when I read that, I actually laughed to myself. I'm like. No one has done this before, so I have to ask you this: Like, I how, know. how does Jeffrey Angles meet Godzilla? <laughs> like, how do you become the Godzilla translator? 
you know, it, it was just, it was just me kind of like, you know, picking this up as the pet project and deciding that I was going to go with it. So, um, at, I was, uh, in Japan at the time of the 2011 disasters and the, the Fukushima meltdown. And it was like the scariest thing I've ever experienced. And so, um, I, like many Japanese literature professors in the U S once I went back to America, I started, you know, introducing, like making a new course about disasters in Japan. And, you know, um, if you teach a class about disasters and Japanese literature or whatever, you know, that's a class that's going to get pretty heavy pretty quickly. So I originally stuck Godzilla in there, partly because I'm a kaiju fan and I like the movies, um, but also partly because, you know, I wanted to like lighten the mood of the class, well, a little bit and, you know, give a student something that they wanted. But as I was showing this movie multiple times over the course of the years in my class, I kept on noticing that in the opening credits, there was this line that said, you know, based on the work of Shigeru Kayama. And I'm like, based on the work of Shigeru Kayama? Like, what? You know, is there a book version of it? And so, I I mean, I I looked, and there is. There is. the These novels that are translated here have been imprints in circulation they've gone through multiple uh, reprintings they're easily available in japan in any big bookstore and um and you know they're kind of a classic of japanese science fiction so you know once i you know got the book and i read it i was like how is it possible that no one has translated this so i, did, I immediately sent off uh, a query to the to the rights holder and said you know hey uh you know i noticed that there's no translation uh would you like one? <laughs> right about that same time, there was, by coincidence, there was a translation of these same novels into French um, and then into Italian. So um, the Japanese, uh, sorry, the English translation is the third translation that I know of into another language. So, wow. Yeah. 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 Wow. That, that, that's incredible. That, that, you know, that's great that you, they always say you have to find a niche and fill it. Well, these, you certainly have here. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I might just add that um, I, I took this project to University of Minnesota Press because in University of Minnesota Press in recent years has been doing a lot of really interesting work on Japanese science fiction. They've um, published translations of a number of important uh, uh, post-war Japanese science fiction authors. And so I thought they might be interested and, you know, almost as soon as I sent it off the University of Minnesota Press, they were like, heck yeah, we want to do this. So I'm, I'm thrilled that the University of Minnesota Press did such a good job. Yeah, it's a, they did. A, it, the, the whole book is from cover to even the cover is terrific. And your afterward is great. I'm so glad it's included there as well. So let's go. Let's well, go. You. Let's go back to the themes of the thing. So you mentioned when I told everybody that I was reading this book on my friends, they said, oh, is that by Yoshiro Honda? And I'm like, no, Honda's the director of the film. You know, he, he didn't write the novel. But you point out, I thought this was really, really interesting. Based upon what you said earlier about, about you know, the, the threat of the hydrogen bomb, you point out that uh-huh. Honda and his co they kind of like had to tone down some of the screenplay because, you know, I right. think you said something like Honda said, like, the bomb isn't just an American threat. It's like a worldwide threat. So right. was there any tension between, you know, them and Kamaya or like, what, what, what do you think, what was Honda's contribution to the whole Godzilla story? Yeah, yeah. So the director of Godzilla, he played a very important role in trying to turn Kayama's screenplay into a workable, um, a workable film. Um, you know, when Kayama wrote the screenplay, like he didn't have sketched out all of the kind of scenes of the destruction of Tokyo. Uh, you know, that happens, but um, in a screenplay, but you know, it wasn't clear what form it would take. So, you know, one of the biggest contributions that Honda made was. Um, 
like just figuring out how it was going to work as a film and, and how to include all those kind of, you know, um, visually striking scenes that we all remember from the 1954 film. But um, one of the, but just as you said, um, Honda was really concerned, um, especially as this project moved on and they started to, you know, build tiny miniature sets of Tokyo that were extremely realistic. Like, you know, those sets that they yeah. made in that first movie are based on like real individual streets and real totally individual up. buildings. You know? When you watch Godzilla yeah. now, they're like, it's, it's, it's not something you watch ironically. Like you, with those scenes with the trains and the bridges with Godzilla, you're like, this is really well done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially for 1954, yeah. we're also used to like CGI and stuff like that right. now, but, um, but yeah, I mean, this is truly a, a well done thing. So, um, as because of the, you know, the, all of these tiny sets and all, all the kind of complications of like, you know, how to make the monster work and be realistic and stuff like that. Um, it ended up getting very expensive. And so this, this project ballooned out of control, the, um, the budget. And Honda was like really, really, really worried. He's like, oh my God, you know, I've led, I'm leading the studios down this very expensive path and I'm not sure if it's going to work or not. So um, it said that his wife, uh, his wife recollected that for like half a year, Honda was w w walking around biting his nails and worried all the time, like thinking that he may have ended his career by, by you know maybe creating a you know an expensive film that that he wasn't. No one was sure if people would like it. You know, no one yeah. was sure if it would be a success or not. But um, but uh, yeah, to kind of return, I think to your to your main question. Um, one of the other things that he did was, um, in order to kind of make it palatable to a uh, to a mainstream audience, he wanted to tone down the anti-nuclear message. Um, uh, Kayama, when he wrote the scenario, he really wanted to talk very, very directly about about the bomb. But um, Honda, the director, felt, you know, if we make it too heavy-handed, it's just going to kind of come across as a protest film, and you know. Do people really like protest films? Are they going to go see it? You know, so he had these questions. And so he toned down a lot of those anti-nuclear messages. I think actually that's one of the reasons that this no novel, um, that the written version of it is kind of so important because um, this was Kayama's chance to sort of reassert some of those anti-nuclear messages that he felt should be at the very core of the story. Yeah. And nuclear weapons, of course, come up as a, you know as a motif. You, you can't read these and not think of the hydrogen bomb and think about nuclear weapons today when you read these. But it's so, right. so you get his you get you know you get um, Kamaya's assumptions about these weapons on every page and every syllable. But it was also interesting uh -huh. that there's a lot of assumptions about science and scientists in these books when I read them, right? Like they both feature right. scientists who are asked to use their knowledge or their inventions, like the oxygen destroyer to defeat Godzilla. Right. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like, is that something that you find is, is are the assumptions about science specifically of a certain place and of a certain time year? Are they more universal? So what do you make of that? No, no, I think that the, um, this is, uh, this is a kind of universal concern. Um, I, I think that like if we think about, you know, the recent release of the film Oppenheimer in the U S mm -hmm. I mean, that's a film that, that explores, you know, what are the ethical, responsibilities of scientists, especially, you know, like when a scientist comes up with something that could be used um, as a weapon of mass destruction, you know, what should their ethical position be? Right. And, um, and that's a, you know, that was something that people who had, you know, knowledge of the atomic bombings of Japan were thinking about, you know, was the use of, 
of the atomic bombs in the end of World War II um, ethical or not? Some some say yes, it brought the war to an end quickly. Other people say no, Japan was on the verge of surrendering anyway. Why you know drop the bomb upon a city that had been completely, uh, pretty much completely unbombed until that point? Right. You know, with huge huge civilian casualties um, when you know that wasn't necessarily. Uh, absolutely necessary, um, you know. So, so there is different s- schools of thought, but, um, but yeah, yeah. I think Kayama's uh, uh, questioning this in this novel is like, you know, what is the the, the ethics of science? And um, we have one character in the in in the novel in the film um, whose name is Serizawa, and this is a guy who, um, in the film, he has a scar across his face. And uh, the novel too. Um, there's no description of where that scar came from, but I think it's included there to kind of give us the impression that somehow he had lived through World War II, seen the horrors of war firsthand, and didn't want to go back there. So, um, you know, he creates this this weapon of mass destruction called the um, oxygen destroyer, but he doesn't want to use it because he's so afraid that if the world sees the oxygen destroyer, you know, then um, unscrupulous nations and so on would. Would you know begin to to kind of adapt it and use science for these, you know, cruel purposes that could come back and, and hurt humanity. So um, you know, so through through the the character of Serizawa, um, Kayam is exploring this ethical dilemma. In the end, uh, some of the other characters like pressure put pressure on Serizawa and say like, well, actually, your use of this new science might actually help save lives. So Serizawa in the film decides to make the dramatic step of killing himself while deploying his new weapon. Um, he he does so so that you know the knowledge will be lost with him, and um, and this science can never be perverted to to terrible means. So you know here it seems pretty clear to me that Kayama is trying to suggest that that you know scientists really need to think in great detail about um, about the ethical implications of the work that they're doing. I think probably Kayama would have been very critical of Robert Oppenheimer, um, you know, um, based on the fact that he has his own scientist, you know, kill himself rather than uh, than you know deliver that uh, knowledge about you know how to create weapons of mass destruction out into the world. There's another ethical debate in the novel too, and also carried over to the film because you find out that mm-hmm. the professor is a zoologist, and he doesn't want his whole thing is we should be studying Godzilla to see how it survived the radiation. But there's also the argument. There's also the argument like we can't study this thing as it keeps wiping out cities. So what's the right thing right. to do there? Like that's another debate that comes up. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 very interesting. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. There's also one interesting point here. Um, it, it doesn't make its way into this film, but in the novels, um, the the uh, paleontologist uh, character Yamane, um, who wants to study Godzilla. He keeps on saying, like, look, this is our spectacular chance. We jo- we Japanese people have done terrible things. And clearly he's referring to, you know, some of the things that happened in World War II. He says, this is our chance to kind of make up for the rest of the world. So in a very kind of indirect fashion, Kayama is kind of touching upon this this very complicated and yeah. uh, problematic issue of, like, you know, what? You know how much guilt do the Japanese people have for World War II, and and what do they need to do to kind of make it up to the rest of the world? So, right. I mean, so there's a lot of like really interesting ethical questions you know posed by this book. 
Yeah, and it reminded me too. You just made me think of like you know that the, there's a whole history of that literature, like you know, with Frankenstein, or with even uh-huh. in, a, in, in a lighter note, something like Jurassic Park. Like, would it be great if we could replicate the DNA from these monsters and we could study them? And then, uh, but who's to say who should be doing the replicating and who's to say who should bring the creature back in Frankenstein? So it's funny that for for a for book for young a book for young readers, it takes those really complicated and it doesn't really choose either because both the the paleontologist and the army have a point. Right, right, right. They each yeah. have their own role. Yeah, they each right. have their own role, yeah. And also, one more thing before we move on. It's so funny. I was also stricken by how much the novel and the film have this in common, which is that you forget this if you haven't been away from the films uh, for a long time since you were a kid, is that there's this whole um, aspect of the stories about how the government has to deal with a giant monster walking out of the bay. So you get to see all these people right. with maps yeah. and calling the police and, and like, what is the proper <laughs> way? You know? And they're like, there's always a guy right. with a map with a pointer saying, we, we've located the beast here. And, um, but like, literally like, what would you do? Like, what's the proper response? Yeah, should, no. you, should you study it? Should you blow it up? Should you use the secret weapon? And, and every right. time the, the scene changes in the book and in the film, you're kind of on that, on that uh, wavelength for those people. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, just uh, as a small aside for the kaiju fans out there, you know, in the audience, um, in the um, in the wake of the Fukushima meltdown in 2011, um, a few years later, there was a, a, a movie made in Japan called Shin Gojira, um, or which translates great to movie. Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. It's a great movie. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally recommend it to, to everyone out there who hasn't seen it. In English, I think it's just called Shin Inu. And then Godzilla, um, but it's uh, it basically pretends like Godzilla never happened. And but the what would happen if Godzilla appeared today? And half right. of the movie is kind of dedicated to to bureaucratic messes, <laughs> like yeah, you know, how would you deal with like right. disasters on this big scale? So, yeah, that's what that's yeah. what I, I loved about it so much is you see people, you literally see bureaucrats running from office to office. Just like a day at work, like a right. what you're gonna do, and it's like it kind of makes you think, like, yeah, what would you do? Like we're used to seeing the monster movies where you see um, street loads of people running away, and someone always drops a child and has to pick up the child, and the footprint's gonna come down. But, <laughs> but, but what, like, what does the Coast Guard do? Okay, where are they gonna go? Right, right, yeah. So let, let's move on to your translation, your actual translation, because sure. I, I thought this was really interesting. And before we get into it, there, I I want to ask you about the challenges of translation in general. So I've spoken to people uh-huh. who have translated literature from other languages into English. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I've, I've read a lot of um, translators' introductions to novels I love. Uh-huh. And, and you know, a lot of them will say, well, there's a lot of judgment calls. There's a lot of compromises. One person right, actually right. said to me, so someone said, it can't be done. It almost can't be done. You almost can't translate it. So we could talk about Godzilla, but generally, like, what are the biggest challenges of, of translating anything so for for a non speaker of Japanese or any language, yeah, yeah, that's boy, that's a huge question. I'm a young now. So, just in a nutshell, um, uh, I, I think you, that you're right that, that um, in translation, there's always a series of judgment calls and and, and compromises. You know, the Japanese language and the English language are fundamentally different in a lot of regards. Um, sometimes you don't have to include, you know, there's certain information you don't have to include in Japanese, which you do in English. Like, you know, you never have to use the word he or she in Japanese if you don't want to. 
Um, it's just, you don't even need to use pronouns at all. It's like, it's a, a remarkably flexible language in that regard. But in English, once you start introducing like pronouns like he, she, they, or whatever, you begin to, to introduce like gender to the characters and so on. So, so like, you know, what each language is kind of forced to convey by the very structure of the language is that differs from language to language. And so those are the places where you're making judgment calls and compromises. I might differ a little bit from the from your other um, informants who said, you know, it almost can't be done because I, I do think that translation can be done. I, you know, otherwise it wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> um, I I think that there's a that that there's something grand about about translation. You're, we're we're striving to kind of recreate work um, in another language. Um, it, but but we, we should recognize that in the process of recreating it, it's kind of like taking a building apart by its bricks and sort of reconstructing it in another place. You know, the order of the bricks might be slightly different. You know, sometimes maybe a wall might be, you know, a slightly different place than it was before. But I think that ultimately we are able to get to a similar looking structure, you know, overall. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it. Another, another metaphor I like to think of is kind of taking you know, liquid from one vessel and kind of pouring it into another vessel, you know, and maybe the form that the liquid takes is slightly different depending on the vessel that holds it. Yeah. In this case, the vessel being language, but, um, but, you know, nonetheless, it's, you know, hopefully it's still the same liquid and hopefully it still looks transparent. You guys feel good. Right. You're not supposed to notice and translate. You know, that's funny because I wonder if you ever do anything with your students, because I don't, one example I have of my own life is I don't speak Homeric Greek or I don't, I can't read it, but just as an exercise, when I would teach the Iliad, I would give my students Uh 15 translations of the first sentence about Achilles. And that was kind of like, well, what, what Uh is this translator up to? And what does this convince you that the poem's about? So, um, have you ever done anything like, do you ever, like, do you ever do anything like that with your students where you, like you talk about the, the, the way you can translate particulars that way? Yes, yes. Um, no, I think that that's a great exercise to do. I, I do something similar. Um, uh, you know, haiku are one of Japan's you know very famous exports, and so like certain very famous haiku have been translated dozens, even hundreds of times. Yeah. And so one of the things that I like to do is I like to take you know a very famous haiku and and show multiple translations about it, uh, translations of it, and talk about how they're different and yeah. what different kinds of impressions they give and so on and for many students that's completely enlightening they yeah um, it is it was enlightening for me a lot right? of students don't have that yeah yeah they'll ask you which is the right one <laughs> well which right, is the right, right one right, right, and right. like well if you do a literal like literal translation it's unreadable and it's not poetic anymore so right, you have to right, try to do right. something but but it's always like it, that's what i think is so interesting about about translators so let's let's go into yeah, your yeah. specific translation here so when yeah. i read when i read these novels Something that occurred to me, my my take on them was that these were these are books for kids, but they're written with very kid friendly prose. Now I, I'm taking mm-hmm. the, taking mm-hmm. this all on trust with your translation, right? Like there's uh-huh. lots of adverbs, there's lots of short paragraphs, there's tons of onomatopoeia, like a lot of bams yeah. and crash and booms. And you talk yeah. about that in your afterward, and I I love the part where you talk about translating Godzilla's roar. Now we all know that sound from the movie, <laughs> right? That we all know that sound. Yes, yes. But, but can you talk about like like the style because it's like you know what I mean? It's very kid friendly to read this, and I don't know yeah. if the original yeah. was like that or if that was a conscious decision by you. So can you talk about your no. style? Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely, when when you read the Japanese, there are so many onomatopoeias in it. Um, I one of the things that struck me when I when I read it was like that this is a book that's 
not just giving us like descriptions of visual sites. Um, it's also giving us like auditory experience as well. Right. Like in places he describes even, you know, scents, like the scent of the city burning and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I think that Kayama is trying to kind of give us more than just like, you know, sort of a visual impression of what, what Tokyo might have been like as it's being destroyed. Um, you know, he's, he's constantly filling like the pages with sounds. And in, in uh, honestly, there, there are places in the in book where like there's so many sounds that it almost became ridiculous in the process of translating. Like just one after another, after another, after another, after another. And, um, you know, I, I thought, should I try to tone that down and make it, you know, a little bit more sort of, you know, like less sound centric, you know, but then, you know, that would give a false impression of what's actually happening in the original. So I decided to embrace all the sounds and try to include, you know, wherever there was something like a sound in Japanese, I tried to include a sound in English that didn't always work. Um, because sometimes like ja Japanese is a language that is so filled with onomatopoeias. There's so many of them. Like, um, one that I talked about in the, in the afterward is, uh, a very particular onomatopoeia, many, many, um, and it's in English that doesn't sound like anything, but, um, in Japanese that, that word is used to describe like the crumpling of a piece of metal or the crumpling of you know, some structure. Like if, a, if, a, if, if a uh, car were to run into a wall, you might say that the, the car crumpled up many, many. And so like, you know, that was like things like that. I didn't quite, right. you know, I had, I had struggled to find an equivalent onomatopoeia in English, but, um, yeah, uh, but I definitely wanted to try to include as much sound as possible. So sometimes I, you know, I put the onomatopoeias in like capital letters, yeah. lots of, you know, lots you of know, exclamation um, points. Ex yeah, exclamation <laughs> points. And, you know, Kayama actually does that in, in Japanese. He uses right. exclamation points a lot, which is right. you know, not exactly typical for Japanese. But, right. Um, but yeah, he did that. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, to, about Godzilla's roar. Um, this was hilarious. This was hilarious. The that that the thing that gua, gua. I thought that was so funny. You're like yeah. like I'm stuck with gua. So could you tell that story? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, so so uh, in the in the written text, uh, whenever Godzilla roars, it it sounds something like gua or some kind of variation of that, something close to that. And you know, when I wrote that out first in English, you know, I was at first I was tempted just to write roar you know um but then in the second novella um godzilla raids again the second kaiju a second big monster comes out of the sea and this second monster has another distinctive roar that's different than godzilla's so obviously i couldn't collapse them both into the same thing plus um kaiju fans you know people who love these movies you know like um the different roars that the monsters had kind of almost became like calling cards for the um for the individual characters and uh like kaiju fans and stuff like all know the individual roars of every monster and and uh, they imitate them and you know all kinds of stuff like that it's that's part of the fun of the whole godzilla franchise so um so anyway but i i didn't feel like godzilla's wow would be very scary in english so i kind of i kind of made a compromise and i kind of made it g r r you know g w w w r a you know, so it kind of sounds more like, you know, I thought that might sound a little bit more ferocious, but yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> so there was a, there was one, one compromise. <laughs>
Well, they reminded me of how you know you, you, when you're re when you're reading you know Marvel comics as a kid or something, I, an Iron Man throws someone through through the roof, and it's just like you know kafoom, or they just make up words because they're trying to approximate that sound on the page. <clears throat> right, right, right. Um, and and it, it might be interesting to note that right about the same time that this book was being written, it was kind of the day right at that moment in time when um, manga, the the Japanese graphic novel, was sure. coming into its own, tur turning in. From something that was relatively short like you know a couple of like you know maybe a couple of squares a couple of boxes in a newspaper into something that was like a long form kind of graphic novel and so along with that along with the development of you know manga um they have if you look at any manga even now you'll see lots and lots of sound effects you know written around the the, right. the speech bubbles you know um and so I don't know exactly how much kind of back and forth there was between the world of manga and Kayama's work, but um, but you know he's doing something that's very much like kind of like what you would see in the in the manga. Yeah, that we're beginning to emerge as a major art form about this time. Lots and lots of sound effects. Yeah, that's re that's really interesting to learn. So, last question for you to kind of put everything together. You just mentioned the franchise. Yeah. If, if someone stops you and says, you know, what is it about Godzilla? We mentioned before that the new Godzilla film is coming out this summer. What is it about Godzilla that you think endures? Why why do these why do people keep coming back to Godzilla? Yeah, you know, so um, this is something that I think that we see even in the very earliest uh, um, books, like in the novels that I translated here. Godzilla is a multifaceted thing. Uh, in in one hand, he is a victimizer. Yeah, he's you know stomping across Tokyo and um. And you know, killing people and you know, destroying homes and that sort of thing. But at the same time, he's also a victim. And uh, like you know, he was awoken from his slumber yeah. by the hydrogen bomb. So you know, he's uh, you know, he's there's a way in which you know, some of the characters, including the paleontologist character in the book, you know, feels very sorry for for this monster. So um, so it, I think that that kind of interesting tension of being both um, you know the aggressor and the victim himself you know that, that that like allows for lots of possibility it allows for people to kind of identify with that and um as a as the godzilla franchise goes on you know sometimes he becomes a hero you know like defeating some of the other enemies in japan and right. and so you know he begins to take on all these different dimensions and so yeah. each film kind of plays up this this you know uh victim slash victimizer Right. And of a dichotomy in its own interesting way. Yeah, so, it seems like it's the oh, it's a very malleable thing. Yeah. yeah, it seems as the franchise goes on, like you said, he becomes more of a, he becomes like you know they call upon Godzilla to save Tokyo from a, a worse monster, and that right. you know certainly now you know as the films go on, you know um uh -huh. you, you know you you want to see Godzilla, you you look forward to seeing Godzilla as, as the star of the show as opposed to like the threat or something. Like you you're kind of on right. Godzilla's side, right? Right, right, mm. right. Yeah. So, yeah. Jeffrey Angles, it's been great talking to you today. Godzilla and Godzilla Raids Again is published by the University of Minnesota Press. You can get it wherever books are sold. I'm so glad I got to talk to you. And congratulations on this totally unique uh, job you did in translating <laughs> these books. It's so cool. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really happy to, to share my kaiju passion with you. Excellent. Well, I hope you all pick it up. Talk to you soon.